This podcast is brought to you by Business Radio, powered by Wharton. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at the Wharton School, and this is Launchpad, where I talk to successful entrepreneurs about the secrets to launching and growing their startups. My next guest is Chanel Fields, who is the founder of MD Ally. Chanel, thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much for having me. All right, so let me first give the URL. So it's M-D-A-L-L-Y, M-D-A-L-L-Y, M-D-A-L-L-Y.com. And uh, Chanel, give us the elevator pitch for MD Ally. Sure, so MD Ally is a non-emergency 911 navigation solution that ensures the appropriate use of emergency resources by providing those non-emergency callers with immediate access to medical guidance, transportation services, and then also scheduling into more appropriate sites of care. Okay, so let's see. I uh, unfortunately last summer I was at a I was at a friend's house listening to uh, some music and uh, had taken a really long bike ride and had been dehydrated. I passed out in the in the uh, in at the concert, and um, they called nine one one. Okay, what would have happened if they had been if the system had been using MD Ally? Yeah, so it really depends on what the chief complaint is that's identified when that call comes in. Mm-hmm. But essentially, when you call nine one one, they take you through a series of questions. The dispatcher takes you through a series of questions to understand the level of acuity of the caller. Mm-hmm. So based on the level of acuity that's determined on a scale of Alpha to Delta, so Alpha being low acuity, non-emergencies, to Delta, which are high acuity, dispatch right right away, depending on where you fell on that scale would determine whether or not you came to us or not. So if you were considered a low acuity caller, then you would come through MD Allies flow. And essentially what the dispatcher would do is offer the caller the opportunity to speak to a certified medical professional that would provide guidance on the most appropriate site of care. And we would also provide uh, transportation scheduling, so leveraging Uber Health or Lyft for patients, and then schedule you into an urgent care center if that was what you needed, or PCP, or still schedule the transportation to the emergency room. Okay, so help me understand how it works now. So the the dispatcher, even now, the dispatcher does this acuity assessment. Is that right? That's yeah. right. So we this process has been around basically okay. since the 80s. So it's okay. called Priority Dispatch Protocols. And yeah. basically, there are determinate protocols that will classify that level of emergency. Mm-hmm. And this process works really well for understanding yeah. the complaint and the response needed. The current process is, let's say if you're an alpha, this protocol determines what level of medical support you're going to get. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to get an EMT basic life support, which is associated with alphas, or if you're a Delta, then you would get either an EMT advanced life support or paramedic, Mm -hmm. so a more advanced medical crew would respond. But but even for alpha, they're they're sending somebody? Oh, absolutely. Okay. Yeah, so the current challenge, and this is where our opportunity lies, is the current challenge is when you call 911, the patient is considered the primary decision maker, because that's the person who has the most contacts on their medical condition. Mm -hmm. The dispatcher is not a medical professional. Yeah. So legally, they cannot provide any medical guidance Mm. to the caller. If you called with a splinter, they couldn't tell you you don't need to go to the hospital, you don't need an ambulance. So legally, they have to dispatch with every request. So that's where the first set of costs come in with the ambulance transport. And then an ambulance 
is only allowed to drop off in one location, which is the emergency room okay. of a hospital. All right. So in my case, um, if MD, if they'd been in the MD ally system, the dispatcher could have dispatched them to the to the to the MD ally system, right? So walk us through again. Now that we're paying attention, exactly how that works. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So if you came through our flow, mm -hmm. uh, if the caller comes through our flow after you are identified as a low acuity caller, when you come to us, we the first thing we do is we facilitate a telehealth care visit. Okay. So that's providing basically a, a virtual care visit for those who don't know what telehealth it, is. It, let me interrupt you, but mm -hmm. but is the ambulance still in the way, or not? So. The decision maker remains, the caller remains the decision maker. Mm -hmm. So if the if you wanted the ambulance to still be dispatched, the ambulance would be dispatched okay. right away. That's not something that we're trying to change. All right. uh, if you say, you know what, yes, I'd actually like to talk to a physician ah, first, okay. then you have the option to come to us. And that's when you would come into the MD Ally flow. Yep. So another important thing to understand is that we don't dictate the pathway that the caller goes down. So the patient remains that primary decision maker. We're just providing them with additional care options because this is also beneficial for the patient in the sense that it saves them time and money as well. So for some homegrown implemented programs that are instituted in a few cities, they've actually found that their patient approval rating is north of 90% mm -hmm. because a lot of times patients call in and they don't know yeah. their level of acuity. Yeah. They don't know whether or not they're experiencing an emergency. So to be able to call 911 and talk to a physician in a matter of minutes yeah. who can help you with making that decision is extremely beneficial yeah. for the caller as well. What what evidence is there that telemedicine is is reliable or accurate? You know, what's the rate of false negatives, false positives, that sort of thing in telemedicine? Yeah, yeah so for traditional telehealth companies, so companies like Teladoc, American mm -hmm. Well, Doc on Demand, it's, it's pretty reliable. Mm -hmm. So telehealth in the traditional sense is generally used for primary care visits. Mm -hmm. uh, so the software that's leveraged, whether it's video conferencing software or just audio, yeah. has been around for a very long yeah. time. So it's very reliable technology that's leveraged. What we're doing is taking that same strong, reliable technology and just integrating it into the 911 call flow mm -hmm. to drive further innovation there yeah. so that callers have an additional benefit when calling in, but also municipalities have an additional way to manage this volume, right. which is increasing at a rate of 5% each year. Yeah. Where where did the idea come from, Chanel? So it actually came from, it started in a bit of a different place. So my father was a volunteer EMT growing up, so mm -hmm. I've always been really passionate about the emergency medical services space. I loved hearing the stories. Mm -hmm. Where did you grow up? What city? Long Island, New York. Yeah. So from yeah. Huntington, yeah. yeah. Uh, Huntington Fire Station. It was really great hearing the stories from yeah. him every day. It's very exciting. Yeah. Um, and so... That really kind of set the foundation for my love for healthcare and EMS. Mm -hmm. Then I went on after school to work for a company called Athena Health, mm -hmm. which does cloud-based um, EMR and practice management solutions. And um, while I was there, this was about a year ago, I started to have more conversations with my father about being an EMT way back in the day, and mm -hmm. then also current EMTs that I was working with. And we had really interesting conversations about the lack of innovation in the EMS space. So that was kind of what sparked the initial idea. Yeah. But even before I had finished applying to Wharton, I had read research by a professor here in the healthcare program. His name is uh, Guy David. And he did a study that showed that low-income and minority communities have higher rates 
of DOAs and that that is somewhat associated with longer ambulance wait times. Mm. And so I thought that that was really interesting and incredibly antiquated that you call 911 and then you just sit there yeah. and you wait. And if you're in a low income or minority community, you could be waiting 20 minutes, you could be yeah. waiting 30 minutes, and you can die a thousand times in that amount of time, yeah. right? So I just thought it was really antiquated that that was still the system and that we have something as awesome as telehealth. And my initial thought was, well, why don't we just integrate telehealth into the 911 call flow so that, and it started with in emergency situations, mm-hmm. when you call 911, you get a physician right away. And that someone has eyes on you, they could start facilitating yeah. that medical guidance so that before the ambulance gets there, the care timeline starts. So it was flipping that care timeline and moving up the clock of emergency care. So that was actually the original business idea. Mm-hmm. And over the last six months, I've had a lot of meetings and conversations to figure out what would be the right model, uh, who would pay for something like yeah. that. And what I found along that journey was actually that there was a lot of value related to helping with this non-emergency challenge mm. and using telehealth in the 911 call flow to provide an additional pathway for them because the clinical challenge currently is that they're taking away ambulance availability from true callers. And so there's actually a lot of stories of people who have passed away during something called a code zero event. Mm-hmm. And a code zero event essentially just means that there are no ambulances available. Wow. So, but it but it's this really challenging situation where the person who benefits most, in this case, the patient, isn't really in a position to make the purchase decision on this. So, so who do, who's where's the financial wedge in the system, and how do you get started? Yeah. So, at no point in our model had we built in the caller paying for right. the service. Right. Uh, so we actually have a lot of great options from a revenue perspective Mm -hmm. around who would pay for this because the ROI is there for the patient, as you mentioned. It's also there for the municipality Mm. because this is a huge cost for them going on these non-emergency runs. So so let me just interrupt you for a second. Mm -hmm. So in in most communities, does the municipality operate the 911 system and the EMT system? Yeah. So in Ah. most municipalities, it's actually a fire EMS Ah. system. And that's why you all a lot of times you see fire trucks yeah. and ambulances together. So yeah. generally they're run together. So there's an ROI component there for them. And then also tracing the cost savings with hospitals, there's a benefit to driving more value to their outpatient facilities, but also improving their clinical outcomes in the ER. Because research shows that if you go to the ER on a day that it's overcrowded, your risk of death can actually increase by 8.9%. Wow. And then when you really look at the big financial beneficiaries, it, it really comes to insurance payers who are paying out these claims. And we've seen a lot in the news about this lately around insurance payers paying out these non-emergency claims yeah. or denying them, really. Yeah. And that causes a PR firestorm. Yeah. So we didn't talk about the provider side at all. Uh, that's the other piece you have to put together. So mm-hmm. how have you tackled that? Yeah, so we are planning to build out a physician network. Mm-hmm. And we actually are very close to signing uh, an agreement and a partnership with a few well-known hospitals in the area mm-hmm. who have centers for innovation mm-hmm. and are going to partner with us to let us recruit against their physicians and their nurses to build out our physician network. And so that's actually where we're starting with the building the physician network. And what we'll be doing is leveraging the excess capacity of physicians mm-hmm. so that they have the flexibility to sign on and take some of these calls. Yeah, and that that pathway has been 
plowed by some of the other telemedicine yes. providers. Yeah. yeah. So that's yeah. a popular model. Yeah. So Chanel, I'm just looking at your bio and it looks like you've got another year at Wharton. You're a Wharton mm -hmm. MBA student in uh, graduating next year. Yeah. So what's the plan over the next year? We just got about a minute. Yeah. yeah so yeah. we just won the Summer Venture Award. So this summer we will be here in Philadelphia continuing to run the business and gain additional traction. I'll be working on this full-time mm -hmm. <laughs> essentially next year trying to go to class on again yeah and then after graduation it'll be you know launching and running the business as well yeah so just for those who don't know this program the summer venture award is is essentially a cash grant to students that allows them to forego taking an internship at Goldman Sachs or something mm -hmm. uh, to work on their 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 venture and it's a program my my staff runs and I'm very proud of it and uh, this is just why, because it, it, this is a good example of why, because it, let, it lets you work on amazing stuff. So, uh, Chanel, it's really interesting, uh, and I wish you the best of luck week after next. Thanks so much for coming in. Thank you so much. All right. For more information about MD Ally, you can go to mdally.com. That's M-D-A-L-L-Y.com. I'm Carl Ulrich, Vice Dean of Entrepreneurship and Innovation at Wharton. Launchpad is produced by Business Radio, powered by the Wharton School, on Sirius XM Channel 111. The show airs live on Wednesdays from 7 to 9 p.m. You can find more episodes of this podcast on SoundCloud or on iTunes. For more insight from Business Radio, please visit businessradio.wharton.upenn.edu.